chapter 9 this morning, and um, as I work through this, instead of trying to just fly through, I really have tried to slow down as we've gotten to this interpret, interpretive stage of things, because um, this was really the main reason I wanted to teach this series, was how do we interpret Scripture? How do we properly interpret? So instead of flying through and just throwing a bunch of information, I want to make sure we took our time to walk through this and, and look at some examples, that sort of thing as well, okay? So we're chapter 9, this is talking about interpretive correlation, okay? Interpretive correlation, and so we begin by talking about comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's basically what we're talking about here, correlating Scripture with other Scripture. And you see here the definition the book gives of interpretive correlation, the practice of comparing Scripture with Scripture for the distinct purpose of informing the interpretation of a particular text based on other related texts. Or, another way we could define it, the methodical pursuit of interpreting the parts in light of the whole. Okay, So as we come to a passage of Scripture um, and we're seeking to interpret it, we're going to compare it with what what does the rest of Scripture say. Um, And so we're going to interpret, as it says there, parts in light of the whole. Okay, So we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, You also see here, relationships which may exist in the text, okay, relationships of which text may correspond, you may see parallel accounts, um, repeated phraseology, common subject matter, identifying markers, cause and effect, inference, and contrast. So these are some things we're going to be looking for to see, is there a relationship between this passage and another passage, okay? Three areas in which we must observe corresponding relationships, and this is what we're going to break down more uh, we're not going to meet next week because of the weekend holiday. We'll pick back up on the 10th. So when we pick back up with chapter 9, we're going to really work through uh, these ideas of history, literature, theology. We've already been talking about it with the hermeneutical triad. So when it comes to comparing Scripture with Scripture, we're looking for relationships in these areas as well, history, literature, theology. And we'll get in, into that with one example this morning to see how those elements are at play. Okay. All right, Scripture interprets Scripture. And I put this quote uh, from the book because I really like it. Uh, It says, Because there's one divine author who superintended the whole of Scripture, we can expect that Scripture will ultimately harmonize. Although the 66 books of the Bible reflect historical, literary, and even theological diversity in terms of covenant covenant motif and revelation historical context, there's an unmistakable continuity born out of that diversity. As a practical result, the student of Scripture can expect that the Bible will function as its own best commentary, okay? The Bible is its own best commentary. You want to interpret Scripture? We're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, okay? So we're going to look for these relationships, this correspondence, this correlation uh, in, in our efforts to rightly interpret God's Word, okay? So there's harmony, of course, in the whole of Scripture. We do have to be careful as the distance between various texts may make any supposed connections more questionable, okay? So, the Bible is one book, one author, divine author, um, but we do have to be careful not to read into, uh, read connections where there's not supposed to be connections, if that makes sense. So, especially when we're looking at our English translations, okay, maybe in Genesis it uses a certain word, and then in the Gospel of John it uses that same English word, and we want to say, oh, there's, there has to be a connection there, and 
John's trying to say this. Well, maybe, maybe not. There's two different languages. They're separated, two different covenants. There may or may not be a connection. And so we have to be careful not to force a connection to try to twist maybe our interpretation. And so that's why it's best to look for these connections within a book of the Bible. It's going to be the same language, same author, um, same focus there. But again, there may be connections outside of a book of the Bible. We just want to be careful. So that takes us to the next idea here, valid correlation. So how can we determine if there's a connection there or maybe if we're reading into it a connection? Another quote from the book, you must think through the validity of parallel relationships on a case-by-case basis, allowing the context of each reference and a good dose of sanctified common sense to determine the merits of the connection, whether in reference to history, literature, or theology, Interpretive correlation requires caution so as to avoid drawing false parallels or unwarranted conclusions, okay? Now, I put up here an example. So I always like when we are able to look at examples of uh, what are we talking about here? Where's a, and so this is an example of a connection that many people make that's not really probably uh, intended to be connected, okay? So Job 23.10, James 1.12, 1 Peter one, six through seven. So I'm going to read these. Tell me what is the common thing that people think is a connection. So look for a common idea in each of these three uh, or really four verses that I read. Tell me if you can pick it out. Okay. Job 23:10 says, but he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. James 1:12. blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is the common thing you saw in all three of those verses? Testing, uh, you have that idea of being refined, Job mentions gold, First Peter mentions gold, James doesn't specifically mention gold, but he talks about the crown of life, um, and so a lot of times that connection is made that, okay, and when we think about Job's life, Job went through trials, so we would want to probably read in, well, Job must be talking about, well, going through these trials is going to make me like gold. Well, um, I want to read just how the book lays this out and why there's not really a connection here um, that we might read into it says it's very easy to assume a link between James 1.12, 1 Peter 1.6 and 7, and Job 23.10, especially knowing the suffering and trials of Job. After all, each reference is talking about fire, trials, refinement, being refined by fire, pure gold, uh, and testing. However, in spite of the fact that Job did experience suffering, the context of Job 23.10 is not affirming that God was using Job's trials to refine his faith. Rather, Job 23.10 is a statement affirming Job's confidence that when he does have the opportunity to stand before God in the courtroom of justice, he'll be proven blameless, vindicated of any wrongdoing. Although the language is similar between these three references, the contexts are quite distinct. Job 23.10 actually has nothing to do with the content of either James 1.12 or 1 Peter 1.6-7. Cross-references will not indicate whether this is a true or false parallel. The only way to evaluate, evaluate the relevance of the connection is by reading each text in context 
sprinkle with a dose of sanctified common sense. Correlation is indeed an artful step of interpretation. So we would probably see that link in James in the first Peter passage, okay, to refining, being refined, being tried, um, and producing, increasing our faith. But when we go back to Job and we understand the context of Job, that's where we can understand, okay, this isn't a direct correlation with James and first Peter. Does that make sense? It's, again, just like we talked about last week, context is key, okay? Don't just pull a verse out. Look at the context. Is Job talking about his faith, or is he talking about being uh, being uh, proven right before God? You know, it talks about that courtroom situation, standing before God and coming forth uh, through that, okay? So, we want to talk about some safeguards against errant interpretation. That's way smaller than I thought it was. Let me see. Do I have another? Okay, that's the quote. So here's two safeguards against errant interpretation, or just the safeguard it says, and there's some examples here. So a safeguard against errant interpretation. Okay, comparing Scripture to Scripture provides a safety net against misinterpretation as the parts of Scripture cannot contradict the whole. Okay? So um, can I get somebody to turn to James 2.24? You got it, Ryan? James 2.24, and then someone turn to Romans 4.5 and be ready to read that for me as well. Okay, I want to look at these two examples. Uh, Romans 4.5, yeah, you got it? All righty. Okay, James 2.24, let's read what that says. Okay, James, you're, you're justified by works. And not by faith alone. Romans 4, 5. Go ahead. Okay. So here we can see, just pulling these verses out one by one, it's easy for us to think, well, those, those are a contradiction, right? James says you're justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans says that your faith is counted as righteousness, okay? So how might, let's, let's key in on James 2.24. Um, I think we all agree that faith, uh, faith alone is what produces our righteousness in Christ, right? Um, so how could James 2.24 be misinterpreted? How could we misinterpret James 2.24? That a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so how could it be misinterpreted? We know the context of James 2, and so that, of course, again, helps us not to misinterpret it, but how could it be misinterpreted? Right, that it's not faith alone, uh, it's faith plus works, right? Faith and works equals salvation, okay? Um, So they would say maybe faith alone doesn't save someone, they have to have faith plus works in order to be saved, okay? Now let me ask this question. Can we properly interpret James twenty, sorry James two twenty four, apart from consulting Romans? Can we properly interpret James two twenty four? Be careful, think through this, without consulting the book of Romans. Or let's say without consulting any other passage, or any other. Let's say if we just had the book of James tossed down, could we properly interpret it apart from? 
correlating it with Scripture. Might have some difference of opinion. Okay, read it for us. Right. So I think the answer is yes. We can interpret James 2.24 without consulting other places. And I like the way the book puts it. James can be interpreted accurately apart from Romans. But why would the interpreter not allow the words of Paul to inform the interpretation of James' words? If all of Scripture is inspired by God, then the benefits of interpreting Scripture by Scripture are self-evident. So, yes, we can properly interpret James 2.24, but... How much better do we have a full picture of what's being talked about here? Um, I think it was Martin Luther that actually rejected the book of James because he thought it was teaching faith plus works. And as he looked at Romans and other books of the Bible, that seemed to be contrary. But again, the point is James is saying there's a lot of people that say I've got faith, but there's no evidence, there's no fruit of the faith. And so what James is pointing out is if you genuinely have faith, it will produce work. So it's not faith plus works equals salvation, but faith alone equals salvation plus works, right? The works are the evidence of your faith. And that's, again, you look at the context of James, that's abundantly clear. But then when we look at Romans and we see faith alone, what Paul's uh, preaching to the Romans uh, helps, helps us to rightly understand that, okay? And not to misinterpret what James is saying. So these are, again, this is a safeguard against errant interpretation. We correlate Scripture with Scripture, and we're able to look at various passages on a subject matter. Um, we can properly interpret it and not wrongly interpret, okay? So that's the aspect of, we could say, the negative aspect. We're not wanting to misinterpret Scripture, but we've got to go a step further. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, having this correlation, also leads to the pursuit of proper interpretation, Okay? The book says it's one thing to understand what a passage cannot mean based upon the principle that obscure text won't contradict clear text. It's another to realize that the meaning of an obscure text can be informed by an understanding of clearer related texts. It's in the spirit of this proactive can-do role that interpretive correlation contributes most actively to the interpretation of Scripture. So not only do we want to safeguard against misinterpretation, we want to compare Scripture to Scripture so we can have proper interpretation okay all right so uh connecting the dots this is the next idea we're going to talk about how do we connect these dots in scripture corresponding relationships are of a diverse kind and varying levels of significance and often spread through a range of texts however even with that diversity most connections fit nicely into the realms of history literature and theology okay so we talked about this at the top and we're going to get into this more as we dive into some examples next week. But I want us to spend the rest of our time, we're going to look at a connection here and look at these examples. So I'm going to have, if you're on this side of the auditorium, turn to Jeremiah 24. Okay? So Jeremiah 24 over here. If you're on this side, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 29. Okay? Jeremiah 24 over here, Jeremiah 29 over here. And then I may ask some of you to read, depending on which side you're on. 
as we work through this. You're Jeremiah 24 over here. Okay, so we've talked about the example uh, throughout our study of properly interpreting Scripture. Jeremiah 29.11, one of the most uh, misquoted, quoted as like a, a universal promise verse. You know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper, uh, not to suffer. And so we take that and we say, man, you know, you're, you're graduating and this is God's promise directly to you that you can claim. Okay, well, we're going to look at how correlating Jeremiah 24 and Jeremiah 29 helps us to not misinterpret that and to properly interpret. Okay, so these, of course, are separated by five chapters in Scripture. So there's a little bit of a difference. They're not back to back in Scripture. But we're going to see why we can make these connections between Jeremiah 24 and Jeremiah 29, okay? Um, They're both different in genre, okay? Um, As you look over those on this side, as you look at maybe the heading of chapter 24, maybe look at a couple verses, what what, what genre might you put chapter 24 under? What kind of genre? We've talked about them a little bit. Okay, it's... Prophetic, and we would say really it's a prophetic vision. You see, Jeremiah sees this vision of good figs and bad figs, and the Lord uses that vision to speak to him prophetically. Okay, um, chapter twenty-nine. Can you tell what kind of genre it is? It's also prophetic, but it's a little different. It's not a vision. Would you say it's a letter? Yeah, it's a letter. So here we have a prophetic vision in Jeremiah twenty-four and Jeremiah twenty-nine. It's a prophetic letter. Okay, so they're different in genre. There's some differences in them, but we're going to make some connections between the two in these realms of history, literature, and theology, okay? So again, I have that example up there. So let's talk about the historical connection. Why can we connect these two chapters? Someone on this side, read verse 1 of Jeremiah 24.1 for me. Someone read Jeremiah 29, 1 1 and 2 over here. So the first two verses of Jeremiah 29. And then verse 2. Okay, yep. So what's the historical connection that we can make based on these two verses? Did you catch some similar references in both? Okay, mentions exile. This is after they went into exile. They both mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, absolutely, king of Babylon, and talks about the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It actually mentions as well... um, Craftsmen, metal workers in both. Um, so what you see here is that this is a the same time period, right? This is when he gets his vision, and then in chapter 29 when he writes the letter, are given a same historical marker. This is when this took place. Uh, it's given the same group of people that it's written to. 
Um, and so you can see that historical connection between Jeremiah 24, 1, and Jeremiah 29, really the chapters as a whole, okay? So those, that's the historical connection that we can see in these two to say, okay, we need to look at these chapters side by side so we don't properly, or so we don't misinterpret Jeremiah 29 and specifically verse 11, which does get misinterpreted, okay? Let's talk about the literary connection, okay? Literary connection. The language of restoration is uh, the same in both passages as well, okay? So um, someone read on this side, verses 6 and 7, Jeremiah 24, 6 and 7. Read that for us. Okay, so you see that idea of restoration. God's going to bring them back. He's going to restore them. They're going to be his people. He's going to work in their heart. Let me read Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, because it's a little lengthy here. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here's the same idea in both passages of restoration. Okay? We also see the language of destruction in both passages. Okay? Um, someone read 9 and 10 of Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24, 9 and 10. And someone on this side, read Jeremiah 29, 17 and 18. Okay, so here you see destruction after the passage about restoring a certain group of people, those who've been exiled, he's going to restore them. But those who stayed put, they're going to be reviled, they're going to be destroyed, there's going to be pestilence, all those things, okay? So not only that do we see that literary connection as far as restoration language and destruction language in both, but did you catch something? Uh, So in Jeremiah 24, for those that didn't look at it, Jeremiah 24 is again a vision where he sees... Uh, let me just read a couple of verses here, verse 2 um, and following, to set the scene of Jeremiah 24. One basket was filled with fresh ripes. This is the vision of the two baskets. One basket was filled with fresh ripe figs, while the other was filled with bad figs that were too rotten to eat. 
Okay, so that's basically what happens, and then God speaks to, here's what you're seeing. Here's what the good figs represent. Here's what the bad figs represent. Did you catch something that Courtney read uh, in Jeremiah 29 that further links these? Not just that there's restoration and destruction mentioned, but there's a specific thing mentioned in chapter 29 that ties it in with chapter 24. Right, he specifically mentions... That picture that we saw in chapter 24 of rotten figs. These, the people are like, rotten figs are so bad, they can't even be eaten. So you see those literary connections where we can say, wow, this is the exact same thing happening. This is a prophetic vision of what's happening. And here's Jeremiah's letter to the people about that vision. Okay, um, Let's talk about next the theological connection as we wrap up. The theological connection, okay? In these two chapters, you also see uh, this theological te- connection. We've talked about, um, we've, we've mentioned that aspect of the hermeneutical triad of theology. We're looking at covenants, we're looking at um, motifs, things like that. And so we see a picture of the new covenant in Jeremiah 24, 5 through 7, and Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, those verses we read about the, there's going to be restoration, God's going to restore them, He's going to give them a new heart, they're going to be His people. Those are very much uh, the language of the New Covenant. We could actually point this forward to Jeremiah 31. Um, You can turn there if you want. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. So we see this language again in this passage where it says, uh, and I think I have it here in the ESV, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we can see this new covenant language in 24 and 29, but we also see it in chapter 31 again. Uh, We could look at Deuteronomy 31 through 10, where it talks about that new covenant. God's going to give them a new heart, Ezekiel 36 and 37, the dry bones come into life. Um, These are all uh, theological connections we can make with the new covenant, okay, to tie them together. We also can see the connection between Jeremiah 24, 8 through 10, and Jeremiah 29, 15 through 19, about the destruction um, of those who were those bad figs. This is Old Covenant language and the curses that we see in Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68, okay? So we can start to make these connections and understand, okay, if we want to properly interpret Jeremiah 29 and specifically verse 11, we've got to look at Jeremiah 24 and see what is the big picture here. And then as we look even at the New Covenant and Old Covenant idea there, theologically, we're able to understand Jeremiah 29, 11. So let me ask you, how, how does the context of understanding these connections, historically, uh, literarily, theologically, looking at chapter 24 and chapter 29, how can that give us a proper understanding of Jeremiah 29, 11? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. How can we properly understand that when we make these connections? Okay, it's a promise, absolutely. Is this a 
uh, universal promise to everybody for all time. Okay, why do you say no? Right, and when we look at chapter 24, we see the good figs and the bad figs, and it specifically talks about the good figs are those who went into exile, that are continuing to trust the Lord. The bad figs are those who stayed. We can understand that, yeah, this is a specific promise to that group of people, and we have a sense of fulfillment in that in the New Covenant, that if we're God's people, um, you know, we have that promise of hope as far as eternal hope and things like that. But it's funny how we're quick to claim universally the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, but then when we talked about those promises or those curses in Jeremiah 29, uh, 15 through 19, we're not quick to claim those promises, right? We're quick to say, well, that's just for those people in Israel that rebelled. That's not for us, but Jeremiah 29, 11 is for us, Okay. So understanding the historical, literary, and theological connect- connections helps us when it comes to properly interpreting Jeremiah 29, 11, not as a universal promise, but as a new covenant promise specifically to those who are in Babylonian captivity. So you can see how it's a benefit to not just take a verse, pull it out, pull it out of context, claim it, uh, but to understand the context of what's being talked about and to make, seek to make these connections with what's going on, what, what is the author seeking to communicate. So any questions about any of that before we wrap up? Or any additional thoughts? So next time we pick back up, what we're going to do is walk more through uh, historical connections, and we're going to look at some examples throughout Scripture. I liked this as a singular example of historical, literary, and theological connections but we're going to look at the headings and we're going to look at some different connections when it comes to um, like the gospel accounts and looking at a similar passage in parallel accounts of the gospels, um, looking at literary comparison we can make and then theological comparison. Yes? So we, that would be where we talk about contrast. We've talked about that before. So there may be times where there's a contrast and you can make a connection because of a contrast, yeah, where it's not just they're talking about the same thing, but they're actually a contrast in Scripture. And maybe the language of that lets you know, okay, this is specifically uh, a connection. So that's a good question, okay? Anything else before we wrap up? There's the last statement I made there just about understanding the history, literary, theological connections.